and welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast, Podcast 71. I'm your host, Brian. Joining me this evening, Ian. Good evening, people. And Mac. Hello, everybody. I don't know why he always goes with Ian first. Uh, you know, I, I do it because that's how they come up in Skype. That was last, last time. I, I don't know. Um, and uh, returning this week, uh, Michael, Agent of Doubt. Geronimo. <laughs> How is everybody doing this evening? Awesome here. Good. Doing all right. All right. What's just you know, Michael? Right. Somewhere, right. somewhere, there's a Native American jumping out of a plane, yelling, "Michael Clifton." Or there's a Hoovian that's happy that there's another Hoovian in the skeptics universe. <laughs> or that Hoovian, huh? Doctor Who. Yeah, Hoovian. fans of Doctor Who. Oh, I, I, every doctor seems to have his own catchphrase, and for a while, it was Geronimo. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, let's get through these announcements. Michael, okay. you want to start there? Those uh, are yours, right? Some of them? I'll start. Okay. Uh, on Halloween night, well, actually the, the daytime, Atheist Community of Colorado Springs will be building homes with Pikes Peak Habitat for Humanity. You could join them if you've had uh, Habitat for Humanity safeties course, but if not, you'll have to get one of those safety courses. But they are actually helping to build homes for people now and okay. putting on a good face for uh, skeptics and atheists in the community. All right. Um, then at night, Pikes Peak atheists' parents will be trick-or-treating in the shops in Monument. It's that little uh, outlet mall. They put on a good Halloween show for the kids there, and it's really safe. Then Thursday, November 1st, Boulder atheists are going to have the, their weekly lunch social which uh, I guess should be on the calendar for forever now. All right. And Friday, November 2nd, the Freethinkers of Colorado Springs are going to get together for a bike ride because it's going to be pretty much the last chance you'll get before the snow comes. Um, also the same day, uh, Atheist Community of Colorado Springs will have their monthly Drinking Without Deities meeting where they all just go to a bar and drink. Then on November 3rd, we've got a Parenting Beyond Belief thing, uh, Raising Kids Without Children. It's uh, by Dale McGowan. It's wait, wait, wait. Raising Kids Without Religion, not Without Children. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully we're doing both. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it says CoCore here. Uh, I know many different uh, skeptics organizations that have this on their calendar. It'll be a nice uh, thing that all people from all over the state are coming to. Um then, at the same time, the Durango Atheists are going to have member talks at the Nash family's house, and, and the Durango Atheists are pretty much uh, sequestered over there on the other side of the mountains. There's no way they're going to make it to the, the parenting class. And then Sunday, November 4th, we've got uh, the Hiking Freethinkers will be in Garden of the Gods hiking, and on the same day, the Secular Student Alliance at UCCS will be having a lecture from former minister John Loftus, who is uh, basically giving us all the dirt on what it used to be like when he was a minister. Excellent. And then on Sunday, November 11th, there is uh, HOC is going to have their Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society thing going on. Right. Well, that's and, actually the, the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Research Society is – that's uh, – uh, uh, Baxter, Brian and Baxter. Yes, and So they'll is. be putting on their little show. And on Saturday, December 22nd, I'm the one running this event. Uh, the Freethinkers of Colorado Springs are going to host a Mayan Survivor Party uh, downtown at Jack Quinn's in Colorado Springs. And it's going to be from 6 to 9. And we're 
our slogan for it is we're going to party like there's no true Maya prophecy. And then, uh, oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's going to go really well with our radio PSA that we're going to put out for it. And then, oh, you're putting out, you're, you're going to go all the way and put out a radio PSA, huh? Yes. We're going to do a radio PSA. We're going to have a YouTube video that we're going to spread around in social media just to get everyone to come down and have a beer. Oh, and it's, nothing else. No, no other commitments, but come down, have a beer and talk to some skeptics. Okay. Um, and, if you if you guys come, I'm buying the drinks. Excellent. Well, I will I will talk to my wife and we'll see if we can make it down. Okay, that'd be fun. All right. Well, uh, I think that uh, Michael has filled in for Kimberly spectacularly. Ta-da! I'm just half as pretty. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter likes to just come up to, to us and go ta-da, just out of the blue. Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. All right. So moving on here, of course, Ian's story is still up at, uh, um, the 50. 50, the 50. And I started reading it. It's actually quite entertaining. Thank you. I've not gotten to the end of it yet. So, uh, you know, it might have a terrible ending, but, um, <clears throat> what I read was great. Cool. Go vote for me. Give me the, be the best of. Love that. All right. Very good. All right. And, uh, shout out to Chris Webb, Weber. Yeah. Remember dumbass sent us the yes. thing. Because apparently, um, a new, um, podcast, skeptic podcast that started up, um, by Chris Weber. And apparently, um, his first, um, podcast was basically about what our last podcast was, kind of going off on, um. Not, well, not quite. So, what, um, that's what he's going to be doing. He's ever, okay. he's going to be doing a much more thorough job than we did. What he did last time on his first podcast is he went through the tools. And the reason that they used them and the evidence that backs up the reason that they used them. Okay. And it was pretty funny because he goes through it and he says the EVP meter and he tells, you know, um, this is the, this is their rationale as to why this would work. And then he says the evidence for this, there is none. And it was pretty much <laughs> like that for every single tool, you know, gives a rationale. The evidence for this, there isn't any. So it was, uh, it was quite entertaining. I, I had a good time listening to the show. So, um, that was excellent. So I, I, I do think that I'd like to have him on. I'm working on another show, um, with Misty where we're, we'll take a look at, uh, paranormal investigators again. And maybe he'd be interested in joining us for that. So I haven't contacted him yet. So, but yeah, so his podcast is the Paranormal Skeptic Academy. Yeah. And so, it's it's okay. a brand new one. Go check it out. Enjoy. Yeah, I'm so, sorry that I, I missed the last podcast, but I was actually, while you guys were recording, I was actually at a presentation by the Colorado Paranormal Team. Uh -huh. um, that's a, a local group here. And the Pikes Peak Skeptic Society, we all decided to go and not tell them that we were in the crowd. And we actually made up about half of their audience. And it, what was interesting is we all have this app on our phones called GroupMe where we're all connected to this hive mind of texting. We text one one place, and it goes out to everyone. And some of the things that the, the, they were saying were just so over-the-top, you know, just moronic, uh, especially saying, well, we have some people here that are from science backgrounds or detective backgrounds, former policemen. We also have some sensitives. So we're trying to meld the objective with the subjective. And when I heard that, I was like, he keeps using those words. I do not think they mean what he thinks they mean. <laughs> uh, I don't think they do. And everyone got a good chuckle out of that. But they had all of the the normal things that you would expect uh, that have already been debunked, like uh, orbs, 
photos of orbs, and they had uh, what they call a vortex. A few days later at a Halloween party for the skeptics, uh, we had the camera on this uh, one light, and it made this straight line down the center of the, the screen. And I used my video camera to say, look, we've just found out how they make the vortexes. And uh, they had this one technique that they, they wouldn't blow up the screen. They said that if they blew, blew it up, we wouldn't be able to see it. But it was this very small screen that they were using, and, and we, we were supposed to be seeing a ghost uh, moving in the background. And I went home just that night to make a, a video for Hans, one of the other members, to show him how easy it is to fake that by using transparency overlay on a YouTube video. And uh, everything that they did, we could explain away. That's pretty, yeah. And I think that's pretty typical in most of these situations. I think that and there's once still... You, once you see one thing from Brian and Baxter, one presentation from them, you you are basically inoculated versus all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. But even they have stuff that they say they can't explain. They, what they, but what they won't do is attribute it to supernatural. It's just stuff they haven't figured out yet. And, and they did, they've had stuff like they had a moving chair that took them a little while to figure out how it was done and some stuff like that. So the nice thing about the way that they, the way that they do this is that they'll present the stuff to you and say, we can't explain this yet. And that's what they leave it. You know, they don't, they don't, they don't have, feel like they have to have an explanation. So that's one of the things that makes them different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so we, we do definitely like them and their little show. They probably listen. I'll probably get, I'll probably hear about that. Yeah, they know that we're all <laughs> marked out fans for Brian and Baxter. That's they know. Right. I know. <laughs> all right. So, uh, are we ready to move on? Let's do it. All right. So back in 2008, um, there had been some, uh, there was, uh, I guess, it says thousands of foreshocks and aftershocks, um, some of them reaching a magnitude of 3.5 in an area of Italy. Um, the epicenter was at, at a town, and I, I know I'm going to screw this up, L'Aquila? I, w- I thought as, it was L'Aquila. As good as I would have. okay. And uh, so um, they, the government had sent in some uh, geologists and seismologists to take a look at the area and um, basically, you know, write up a report and determine, you know, what they what they thought the likelihood of a of a major event happening is, um, which uh, is really an unfair thing for the to ha- ask them to do in the first place. But regardless, they went out to survey the area, and in the report they said um, that they felt that. Um, that the likelihood was was small, was low. And so they, you know, they gave the report back to the government. Six days later, an earthquake of a magnitude of uh, 5.9 on the Richter scale and 6.3 on, what is it, uh, the movement, um, it's a different scale. Uh, sorry, guys. Let me look this up real quick. That I had it written down. They have to have their own scale. They well, there's use... two. There's two different scales that they use. One is one is a Richter scale, and the other one is is the Metric. motion magnitude scale. And I don't. Yeah. I actually don't under know much about the um, motion magnitude scale. I do know that that in a lot of these reports they confused the two and were claiming it to be a six point three. Uh, magnitude earthquake, which is which is the Richter scale, but it's, but that was only 5.8. It was 6.3 on the movement magnitude scale, and in this area, it did quite a bit of damage. Um, and I, I, I don't if you guys have uh, I, the the photos. Have you guys looked through any of the photos that I put up? I did take a look yeah. through the photos. It was 
quite a disaster. Um, yeah. Uh, many, many people were injured. Um, over 300 people were killed. And I've, I've seen the numbers anywhere, like um, here in Wikipedia, they say 229. I've seen them as high as 330. So around... Now, with anything like that, it's hard to get an accurate count, though. So. Yeah. You know, not to be insensitive, but uh, I, I looked through the photos, and really, honestly, comparatively speaking, it doesn't look like that much damage. Of course, I've seen Michael Bay movies, so... <laughs> Well, to me, it looked like a significant amount of damage for an earthquake. It was not necessarily I, – I don't know that it was quite to the devastation event of Haiti. Um, well, yeah, but, and when you see the governor's palace just basically pulverized, yeah, that was a pretty bad earthquake because even something that you know public funds built – you know that 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 you would expect it to be a little bit stronger than all the other structures. It's pulverized in those pictures. Well, you know that's an interesting thing that that happened here is that in this area there was a lot of medieval buildings, and the medieval buildings sustained damage. Um, but actually, m- many more of the modern buildings were sustained um, a significant more amount more damage than even the medieval buildings. So the medieval buildings in the area were were built um, better than the later buildings. Think about what the medieval buildings were met were meant to withstand, though. Well, see that, and that's that's something I started to think about as I was looking at the disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, is what these at the time that the medieval buildings were were being built? Maybe they would, maybe it was even more seismically active, and so they well, built. Well, and that. I'm thinking, you know, siege en- siege engines. You know, medieval buildings were built with defense in mind in a lot of cases. I don't know if that's true in this case or not. That is certainly a possibility. Um, I, I don't know that much about the historic nature of the area. Other than it was probably, you know, I'm sure it was only that it was ruled by Rome at one time. Well, and just using logic here, the the medieval buildings that we still have have gone through multiple earthquakes before. Sure. It's the yep. medieval buildings that we don't have that we don't see, and these other buildings were probably built in the footprint of. Well, yeah, and... There was quite a few of them. The article says that there's quite a few medieval buildings in the area and that, yes, they were damaged, but not as heavily damaged as the modern buildings. Yeah, but Michael's point is that the medieval buildings that are there are, that are there have been through everything, and there's a reason why they're still right. standing. And I would imagine that, like in most towns, different people built to different scales. So, yeah, yeah. so you're right. So the, so the ones that couldn't have withstood it are gone. Fair enough. Um, but w- what's interesting about this is that the six scientists that put together this report <clears throat> um, that said that the likelihood of, of an event like this was low were put on trial. And and they were uh, this week found guilty of manslaughter. I have a couple of thoughts on that. Okay, go ahead. First, a six-year sentence for manslaughter, multiple counts of manslaughter, seems pretty light to me. It's, it's you know, in terms it's – a, it's a long time – in terms of a person's life, but in terms of manslaughter, it seems like a wrist slap to me. Okay, but they also have to pay all the legal costs of the trial. Yes, and they also have to pay damages for the area as well. I saw that. Okay, so I have a huge problem with the verdict in the yeah. first place. It is ridiculous. A seismic event like this is not predictable. They could not have predicted it. And even though we're getting better with this kind of stuff, there is no way that that they could have gone, looked at the evidence, and said, yep, we're heading for a big one. These are, what, one in a hundred year, one in a thousand year events, even in this yeah. area? 
and they're supposed and, and they're being tried for something that's unpredictable, they shouldn't have been tried in the first place. But for no, them it's to be charged with manslaughter. It's, it's, it's people are angry and they want something to blame. Exactly. Yeah. For an and act of, an act of, you know, dare I say, an act of God. Well, one of the articles mentioned the fact that um, they really shouldn't have been holding the trials in the same city it happened in. Because well, exactly. Because so, you know, the emotions and everything. It's like, no, get them away yeah. from where everyone's I'm going thinking to... change of venue might have been a good plan. Well, yeah. my, my, my comparison to that is the, um, uh, is the Oklahoma City bombings. With, uh, with Timothy McVeigh, they the they that was not tried in Oklahoma City. That right. was tried here in Denver, so they got it away from Oklahoma City. And you see, one thing you look at with crimes and stuff, we love finding someone to blame. Let's take the recent um, the young girl that was kidnapped in Westminster and found dead. I remember the day um, that the they arrested someone. I kept looking at it, like, because people would say, oh, look, they, they arrested the murderer. I was like, no, they've arrested a suspect who they believe is, um, might be the murderer. They we, we don't have any, you know, wait until all mm. the information comes out. Stop trying to, you know, and everyone was like, oh, great, there's justice because they arrested someone. It's like, no, there's not justice because they arrested someone. They're taking someone into custody, and if it turns out to be the person guilty, great. If not, you know, but people are so big and they want to find someone to blame. You have, you know, they, they want someone arrested for everything, whether or not they're guilty or not. Once you can point the finger, so many people say that's justice, and that's where you get a lot of you know innocent people be, um, being found guilty is because they're not looking for actual um, justice. They're looking for you know to point the finger and just get this weird feeling that okay, as long as we have someone to blame, things are better. And that's what this felt like to me. Well, and that's certainly going on here. So I, I was looking Brian, for hmm. Brian. Quick question. Yeah. So this is a five point eight on the Richter scale. Right. Um, the the initial shocks were five point eight on the Richter scale. Would those be perceivable? You know, if you're standing in that area, would you feel that that shock go through? Absolutely. You would. You would probably. You would feel the um, the S wave and the P wave, particularly at the epicenter. Okay. So I, I'm not wrong in saying that the people in the area did have some forewarning. No, they didn't. The way that these things travel, they don't give warning. The only potential warning that we had in this case were the were the shocks leading up to it. But that's they, what I'm saying. But they're not telltale signs of anything. They had they had pre shocks. They had they knew something was going on. Mm, no, not but, necessarily. But that's just, that's not necessarily. To take the, instead, they decided that they were going to go with what the scientists said, which is that they couldn't find any evidence that there was a major event coming. Which they couldn't have found. There's no way for them to find that evidence. Yeah. And that's right. the thing. Small earthquakes don't necessarily mean there's a big one coming. Right. Yeah. My, my point is a that, pattern like that this is people looking for somebody to blame. Yes. Yes. Well, okay. So that's what we can go on to. I, I, I pointed out three types of bias that I think are going on here. Um, definitely some more the, uh, than the others. I started with hindsight bias. That was the first thing that I found. Um, and the hindsight bias is also known as the um, we knew it all along effect and the creeping um, determination. And basically, you know, th this has to do with looking at what happened and looking back at it and, and making correlations. Mm -hmm. But it didn't quite do it for me. So I, I continued looking and that's when I found outcome bias. And outcome bias was very specific to what was going on here. Outcome bias is an error made in the evaluation of the quality of the determination when the outcome of the decision is already known. So simply, basically, they looked and said, well, there was a quake, so they were wrong. Okay. Which they were wrong, right? Okay. We, I mean, we, we can admit that 
they didn't predict it. But the, you looking at the outcome, working backwards with outcome bias and hindsight bias, you could, they, you know, they're saying, well, they could have predicted it. They should have known. Um, and then the other one that I pointed out in here was um, uh, emotional bias. And so basically, you know, people feeling uh, in, in this particular case, because there was so much devastation, so many people lost, these people were um, emotionally distraught. And so by trying them in this location, they found them guilty. There is no way right. that they could have gotten a fair trial trying them in this location. If I may. Yes, please. Uh, it's even worse as compared to what we consider a fair trial here in America. In the Italian system of government, the judge that presided over this case was actually one of the jurors. There are two judges in every case, and there are six other jurors. And the judge that presides over the case decides what information the rest of the jury gets because he's also presiding over the case. So by allowing all of this information of how many people were hurt by this disaster... You know, and, and allowing it in, in such a manner that it, it just clouded their judgment. He, just the, the, the system of government they have there with their, their justice system is completely different than what we would expect for a fair trial. That certainly poisons the well, doesn't it? Yes. yes. And so if one judge believes that the jury needs to hear all of the sob stories of the hundreds that you know, of lives that were lost and, and give every family the, the ability to affect the outcome of this case and get some sort of vengeance, you know, from having their story get heard, then he's basically, you know, he, he is the one that would have been overruled by all of the other jurors if it were the American system. You know, if there were one person on the jury saying, you know, saying, hey, we need to take this into consideration, the rest of the jurors would probably say, ah, no, we've heard enough. You know, and yeah, that would happen in deliberations. Like, we don't need to go over the, you know, the, the victim's testimony anymore. This judge allowed a lot of victim testimony in. Okay. Wow. Okay. So I, I think it's, um, pretty, pretty obvious that the, that before this started, there was kind of already a determination considering right. where they did it, who they used to try it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I pointed out, you know, cause I, I saw this on Facebook and so I've been arguing with people on Facebook about it. And, you know, basically they, they come back to, well, they said that it was low risk and a lot of people were hurt. And I said, well, I said, let me, I said, it's kind of a slippery slope. I said, yeah. well, let, anybody who was, had any basic science education would realize that this was an unpredictable event. Um, because, but because they didn't get that, I think we should blame the teachers. The teachers are criminals. But, well, it's like, well, well hold on. Let, let me, let me finish my slippery slope here. Because the teachers aren't getting, aren't be giving enough time and enough money by the government in order to teach science properly. It's the government's fault. Well, and the government also sent those scientists out there, so they're doubly to blame. Okay, and I'm not done yet. The people don't want to pay their taxes to give to give the government the money that it (laughs) needs to pay for a proper science education. So now everybody's to blame. Now I can add another level to that. Oh, please. The uh, vice director of the Civil Protection Department was the person who talked to the six scientists who said that the chances were low 
the vice director went and told the public in many public interviews that that there was nothing to worry about. Those were his words. Yeah. Those weren't the scientists' words. The scientists were saying there is a small chance. You know, right. and he's saying that there's nothing to worry about. The disconnect there is that he he had a job to try to keep the peace. You know, and he only heard what he wanted to hear. <laughs> And he didn't speak science speak. And that goes back to it's the teacher's <coughs> fault because uh, somebody who can make it to vice director of the civil protection department can have no scientific education whatsoever and still hold that position and and basically lie to people not knowing that he's lying. We've seen that here in America. Yeah. No, the person <laughs> but, that uh, I, I was... But, uh, you know, this kind of logic would be... Um, Saying that the, if the weather forecaster messed up and it was icy the next day and um, you weren't ready for it and drove and hit your car, guess what? They gave you a bad prediction. Right. You know. That was my first joke. I said, watch out, weatherman. You might be next. Yep. <laughs> um, but so the person that uh, I've been – it's a discussion. I guess we're not really arguing. We're, we're just discussing the points. Um she said that she agreed that the, that it was unfair. She says the problem is the scientists were pressured into signing a document which stated that there was very little risk. Well, I, I didn't find any evidence of that. There was a report. They did sign it, and they did say there was little risk. And so I um, so I asked her to, to cite her source on that um, because I, I can't find what she's saying exactly. Um, and then she goes in to say, uh, for the people, there was mass confusion um, and panic. Uh and would be avoided, but the problem is that if if they had said that there was low risk, but yet issued a warning, they could have done more harm than good. And that and that's one of the problems in these kind of circumstances is that all you can make is a general, you know, kind of preparedness statement. Is like, well, this could happen at any time. That's all you can say. Um, and so basically, you know, the, she goes on to talk about the disaster and, and so forth. And, um, but then she admits that it's not the scientist's fault. So it sounds like she might be having some trouble, you know, with empathizing for the people having the disaster, but yet understanding that it's not the scientist's fault. And I, and I can appreciate that because these people were, were devastated. I get that. And, I, I, I don't want to take anything away from that, but it is a false sense of justice to blame, you know, to blame these six scientists. It may feel good in the short term, but in the long term, I think this is going to do a lot of damage. And we're already starting to see it because scientists don't want this to happen to them. We've already had a couple of scientists step down from the Italian government. Um, and the government, somebody, a spokesman for the government came out and said, listen, we hope this is overturned. They don't want to lose their scientists. They're trying to, to work that out, um, currently. So it's not over there. I mean, there's, there's gotta be an appeal, but I mean, if they appeal it in the same location, they don't have a prayer. Right. Uh, and, and Michael, you seem to know something about the Italian system of justice. Do they have anything like, uh, like higher courts to appeal to such as our system? Uh, yes, they do. But right now, at this point, the judges and the jury don't actually have to finish up their uh, their reports for ninety days. Okay. The, the jury has to give file a report as to why they uh, rendered the verdict that they did. That report hasn't come out, so we don't know what the next step in the appeal process will be because okay. of the delays that the Italian justice system has worked into it. All right. So, Brian, you know something about uh, the work of seismologists and geologists. 
So uh, how does one how does a seismologist go about making a prison shank? <laughs> should shall I admit my bias here? Would you would you like that? I work well, for I know a, your bias already. Yeah, I, I work for a company and I work with geologists and um and um uh, geophysicists. And what we do is um, we we process seismic data, and we're looking for oil and gas. Now, it's not quite the same thing um, because we're looking at reflection data, and earthquake data is 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 different. So, the, so the tools are similar but not identical. Um, but when we go out and we do this, we we're actually creating the seismic event that we're recording. So it's much more precise, and we and we can we can adjust um, the resolution of how how fine we want to look at at, um, at the data and how deep we want to look at it. Um, but even still, looking even though we have higher quality data that you would have from an earthquake, we can see faults and stuff like that. Um, we can we can we're, we've gotten much better, and depending on how we process the data at the looking at the resolution, we can find oil and gas under the surface but even as good as this stuff is people still drill dry wells all the time and and we're actually going out and intentionally looking for this stuff and we don't always find it we and we sometimes miss it's it's difficult to to do what they're being asked to do and i i'd say i i still think it's impossible with our current level of technology anyway to predict an earthquake we just don't have the data to do it I, I've stunned you all into silence. No, I'm just listening to you. Okay. I mean, I already knew your bias on this. Right. So I work with scientists, but we're not we're not looking at earthquakes, right? But we're still processing seismic data. You're not a scientist, but you do play one on television. I play one on television. Yeah. Anything else, guys? Uh, I, not I, on that. Not on that. I, I do know a, a bunch of people who are very upset about this and. Uh, I'm wondering that after this 90-day process is up and, and this verdict is entered, finally, will we see a, a, a black armband movement among all scientists over this? You know, there was a comparison in here to what happened in Katrina, where, where the um, Corps of Army Engineers got blamed for maybe not, um, uh, I guess it was probably um, patching the levees properly, and, uh, and there was some flooding that happened because of that. Um, and so... And so, you know, they, they make an, they make an assumption. Oh, I guess that's the other thing I do want to point out here. Um, they, they make an assumption that, that these things are preventable because, you know, we looked at the core army engineers, but I don't think we sued any of them for manslaughter. What no. we did do and what you should do after a disaster like this is look at it, identify your weak spots and try to fix them. Currently, we have, we have storms in the east that could create another uh, Katrina, you know, level event. Uh, we know that our president is taking it seriously, right? But there will be mistakes that are made, and we have to evaluate them afterwards. But the other thing that I that I kind of thought that this conviction kind of does is it is it reinforces the idea that this was a predictable event. And so people might expect that this that that a scientist should be able to predict this in the future right. when we can't. Well, with our current level of technology and our current level of understanding, we can't connect, we can't predict it. It is possible we could predict it in the future, but that's, that's a theory. That's, that's, nobody right, that's knows like, that for sure. But even to what level? Just because they said the risks were low and, and this event happened doesn't mean that they were wrong. They were probably still right, but it happened. 
So we can't say – I mean it's hard to say whether they made the right prediction or not given the – I mean I, I, I was talking to a, a, one of the geophysicists about this and he says, you know, I can't think of anything less predictable than, you know, than seismology. Weather is more predictable than seismology. Yeah. But let's sue some weathermen anyway. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. Um, uh, we're going to revisit some of the um, uh, right to die stuff. And, and I, I had, uh, brought this up to Mac. I was hoping that Mac would, uh, because this was kind of your topic to begin with. It was. Um, so I, I put up here, um, the Terry Pratchett documentary, which did come out a year ago, but I hadn't seen it, um, about his choosing, um, or at least contemplating that he wanted to die. Um, and so he did a documentary where he followed a couple of people, um, that actually decided to, to end their lives. He uh, he actually took a trip with them to Switzerland to visit the organization Dignitas. And it was interesting to watch. Um, I got the very distinct impression that his aide who traveled with him, the guy who's the guy who helped him along and everything else, his aide was very, very disapproving of the whole process. Yeah, it did seem I that also way. got the impression watching the documentary that uh Terry himself was actually kind of disapproving because there's no there's no limit on it. Dignitas will take, will basically assess anybody who feels like their quality of life has, has dropped. And it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a, uh, a physical situation. It could be a mental situation as well. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, however, he talked to, he talked to one of the doctors and said, you know, if I know that I want to make this decision, but something happens where I'm unable to make the decision, is there somebody who can help me? And they said, no. You have to actually take the step yourself. You have to drink the cocktail yourself. Yeah. You know, uh, he, I, I got the, I got the feeling, you know, when, he, that as he talked about it, um, I mean, definitely the people that they followed to go and do this were suffering. And there was, there was definitely a feeling that they needed to make this decision why they were cognizant and able to do it. So that, so that, um, so that they could do it the way that they wanted to, with the dignity that they wanted to go out with. Um, it was interesting though, they, they did talk to, uh, uh, another gentleman whose wife really did not want him to do it. And, and I, and I talked to, I was talking to Jen about this and I'm like, you know, it's a little bit selfish. And, and I, I don't want that to sound bad because these people are losing their life partners in many of these cases. Ooh, Brian, who does your life belong to? It belongs to me. Okay. These people who are ending their lives, who do their lives belong to? Oh, well, they, they felt that they belonged to them. Okay. Do you disagree? No, I do not. Mm, okay. I actually kind of do. Okay, go ahead. Especially once you have a family, you kind of pledge part of your life to you. As far as I'm concerned, while my life is my own... I've made a commitment to my wife. I have a commitment to my kids. And if I was to go through something like that, they would have to be a part of it. Now, in the end, they might not agree with it, but they definitely would have to be a part of it. it I, I would have to include them in the decision because they are part of my life. And however you want to look at it, the people who are around you do, to some extent, own your life. What you do to yourself does affect them. Right. There are repercussions. But if so you do have to think about them. I, I'm not I didn't say you don't have to think about them. But and I'm not and I'm not saying even you don't have to include them, but but if you're getting to a point where you're suffering like some of these people right. were and your wife is saying I don't want you to go, but yet you're suffering, 
Mm-hmm. Right. That that, that so, becomes rather self-pissed on your wife's part. And that's great. that's what I'm that's the point that I'm getting at right, right. there. But I don't but, write it off as saying okay. my life is my life. Well, but I still yeah, think that, that my life is I mean it is my responsibility ultimately. I, but I, 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 but I don't want to be ca- too callous about it because, on the other hand, these, the, the these significant others, these partners, are, are going to be losing this person. Right. That's right. The thing. And and so even though I, I, I can see see that it's selfish, I understand where they're coming from. I understand their yeah. selfishness, and I certainly appreciate it. But at what point uh, do do you have to say? This person is suffering, and I need to let them go, right. and that's well, difficult. That's part, yeah, that, that's where a lot of this comes from. Is both sides have to, you know, face facts. It, it's not a one-sided thing. It definitely you can't just say it's the one person's choice. It is multiple-sided, and all the sides have to kind of face reality. In the end, yeah, it's the person who's suffering's choice, but the other people are involved. The other people are going to, you know, be affected by this, and. The person who's making that choice hopefully has supportive partners, supportive family that understand why they're making that choice and can live with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what you hope for in the best situation. This was difficult for me to watch. Yeah. Um, and it was difficult for Jen to watch. Um, you're talking about the uh, you're talking about the documentary. The documentary. Yeah. It was hard for me to watch too. I, I sat there watching it and I ended up having to I had to pause it about halfway through and go hold my bird. Sure. And you have to remember, I've somewhat been through it. My grandfather, um, basically, um, what was it called? I can't remember the whole, what, what it's called. But he, he, um, you know, said, no, I don't care at this point. Just let me die. And, um, you know, he basically, I, I, I at least got closer. I think I've said that in past yeah, podcasts with it yep. all. You know, yeah. I got talked with him, see with him before he really let himself go. And, you know, we, the whole family knew it and was okay. That's, what he's decided we're not about to stop him. So, but, you know, he had lived a full life and he, uh, th- there's some stuff about whether or not he was really suffering. You know, some of the suffering was your basic old age stuff. I mean, he was, I think, near 90 at the time. <laughs> okay, and, but that's suffering. You know, so, yeah. And so, you know, his body was given out on him little by little and he, he was very healthy for 90, really, at the beginning of it all. But he didn't like, the feeling that um, he, you know, he couldn't drive himself anywhere anymore. He didn't have the control over his life he liked. He was getting very depressed. You know, he was having some real issues over that, and um, he was letting his health deteriorate. And there wasn't much we could do about that. And if we kept fighting him and saying, "Okay, you gotta go to the doctors," and you know, we have to do this every month or so, and you know, there was a pattern kind of to it. And so, you know, there is a point where it's like, okay, he lived a full life, and you know, whether or not we love him. We have to let him make the choice. Sure. And at some point, because you love him, you have to let him make the choice. Right. Yeah. So there were some interesting statistics that came up in the, in the show. Um, and, and, and I mean, and I think that this might be, um, to the point that, uh, Mac was making a little earlier, but 21% of the, the people that go to, um, Digitas do not have terminal illness. But uh, feel that De- dignitas, dignitas. I'm sorry. Yeah, dignitas. You're right. Um, but they have, you know, they they feel weary with life, and they have chosen to end their lives at that point. But even more, I thought it was interesting is that they say that 70 percent of the people who they green light to to do this never call back. That 
in some ways, um, the service that they provided was empowering to these people. And once they felt like they had control over it, right? They 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 never felt like they had it. They didn't go through with it. Seventy percent. That makes sense, though. That's, any program like that, we, when we did our actual episode on it, that's one thing we were talking about, is if you were to make it legal for people to um, have suicide, they'd have to go through a, a program similar to what um, people that want gender reassignment surgery go through. And it's like, okay, is this really what you want? You know, think about it and, you know, we'll give you all the details. We'll let you have the control over it. And in the end, you know, you have to realize this is a real permanent decision that you can't come back from. So we're not going to let you make it lightly. Right. And that when they did, you know, that they had a physician come and, and talk to these people twice and make sure that they were, co- you know, that they were of sound mind enough to make this decision. So they had to have two visits. And then even once they got there, the, you know, the, the, um, the person giving them, you know, the, the, uh, the medicine, the poison, um, asked them repeatedly, do you want to do this today? Do you want to do this today? And, and the gentleman that, you know, that, that we followed was like, uh, yes, I, I understand, uh, and I this is what I want. And in the end, he he drank it, and uh, it was quite peaceful. You know, we we watched him die in this documentary. It was um a little weird, um, but he he made the choice. He drank it himself, and in the end, you know, we we watched him die. So it's a snuff movie. <laughs> Not quite, but but in the end, you know, and Terry Pratchett goes up to the people who administered it and thank them very much for the way that they conducted themselves, the, for the professionalism that they showed. Uh, if you haven't gotten to the end of it yet, you really need to watch that piece of it. Okay. It, it, was, it, was, it was quite moving um, to, to, watch, to, to watch that whole process. Well, that's one thing um, some people don't realize is the doctors that advocate that actually do respect life. Then they're not just trying to kill everyone left and right. They don't believe, hey, you know, end it. Here, let's make it easy for you. You know, they do actually have a respect for life, and it's part of that respect for life that comes to, hey, if you're at that point, let's help you die with dignity. Right. So to me, that is, a, you know, showing respect for life, because life isn't just about being alive. It's about your quality of life, your enjoyment of life. It has to play a part in it. Yeah. So it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it was very powerful to watch. So, um, anything else on that one, guys? I'm, I'm pretty much over the documentary one. Okay. Let's... I, I know you did put some other stuff in here, though, about about uh, Sung Yun Grace. Yeah, she is a Korean woman uh, of 28. She has a uh, um, a tumor on her brainstem. Um, so, and um, she has been treated with radiation, and uh, um, but it is uh, inoperable at this point. Um, Brian, hold on one second. I do want to bounce back to something from okay, the Dignitas sure. yeah, Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. Um. There is a note in there talking about the fact that they dumped a bunch of cremation urns in Lake Zurich, or at least they're being investigated for having dumped at least 60 cremation urns in Lake Zurich. Hmm. Okay. And the numbers may go as high as 300, and for an organization that has essentially assisted about a 1,000 people total, that's about a third of their clientele. That's. I, I went looking for more information on that, okay. and honestly, all I could find was reports that had been done, not not any response from Dignitas, and it just seems really, really weird and sketchy that a whole bunch of a whole bunch of remains would be dumped so unceremoniously. Yeah, I 
I, I, I did not read that. I have no response to that. <laughs> um, okay. and it, so I don't know if that's true or not. You know, part of the problem that we have with, with some of these stories, and I think part of it is with the, and with the, um, seismologist story as well, is, um, they're not happening in the United States and they're in a foreign language. And so the stories that we get are, are, are from translations. And so there's so there's always going to be some issues there, and the same thing could be happening here with the Digitas story with those urns is that we may not be getting everything um, because my Swedish sucks. Okay. <laughs> um, and if you were trying to read it in Swedish, you'd have a bigger problem because that's Swiss. Yeah, sorry. Yes. You can always tell Swiss because it's got holes in it or it's covered in chocolate. <laughs> oh, very good. I apologize. Or it's got for a lot that. of flakes. Yes, my Swiss sucks, and so does my Swedish. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I mean, we, there's definitely um, uh, there's definitely um, a communication gap when it comes to that stuff. Uh, that would be most unfortunate. Um, it, it it makes it feel like it's a mill when you read that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find an article from the Daily Telegraph, which is a British newspaper, and it was addressing the fact that it didn't know if any any remains of British citizens were dumped. But that they, um, that they really were hoping that Britain would make a law allowing it so that British citizens could die at home. So. Yeah, they're working on that. And you know, yeah. we ha- in Oregon, um, I, I know that that's our right to die state, but I don't know if you can come from out of state to get services. But, um, we're seeing that become more and more acceptable in the United States. All right. Are we ready to move on? Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry, I interrupted. Yeah. So you had said her name very lovely, and I'm not even going to try. Sun Sun Young Grace is what I've got. Sun Young Grace. So, yeah. So she um, has an inoperable brain tumor. Uh, It's on the brain stem, and at this point, she is paralyzed from the neck down. Um, She's on a ventilator. Um, It sounds like her medulla oblongata is not working either. So yeah. If she's on a on an, on a ventilator, essentially it's breathing for her and her medulla is not functioning. Right. Um, the only way at this point that she can communicate is by um, uh, blinking her her eyes and mouthing words. Right. Um, and so that's how they've been communicating with her. Um, she's on. She's heavily. She's got a lot of morphine going through her system, and uh, she at some point uh, had decided she was she was done. She was ready to die. Um, and uh, she had been fighting with her parents for the right to die, which she finally won. Um, and and then, then the strange thing happens. She wins it, and then she turns over um, a power of attorney to her father to make her medical decisions for her, and now they're claiming that she no longer wants to die. It, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in this case. Yeah. Um, maybe it's one of these cases where once she felt like she had, she was empowered enough that that was good enough. Um, but it also could be that her father, who is a, uh, um, uh, minister. Minister. Uh, yeah. Um, who believes that if she commits suicide and they believe that removing the, f- um, the breathing tube would be a suicide, then, um, she would go to hell. And it, it's amazing to me to think, well, if we didn't have that ventilator, she would already be dead. Right. And, and so it, by letting her die naturally because she, because her brain can no longer support her, that would be suicide. 
And I guess I just don't see it that way. I mean, she's being kept alive by machines, and she has expressed that this is not of her wishes. Right, but her cl- parents are claiming the doctors um, manipulated her, and you know, with how drugged up she was. Okay, that, that's their claim. But I, it, yeah, that, this is one of those things where um, that's not typical of doctors. That doesn't yeah. mean it's not happening, but they have this thing called the Hippocratic Oath, and I think most doctors want to keep their patients alive. Or at least do what they want, what they request. And I know that just recently when Jen was into the hospital, the, her doctor asked her, you know, I, I, I realize that I probably already know the answer to this, but because you're coming into the hospital with me, if you were to become to a point where you would have to be put on a respirator or, or resuscitated, do you want me to do that? And of course, you know, Jen said yes, but at least the, the doctor found out what her wishes were prior to taking her into the, into the hospital. Right. Prior to admission, to find out what her wishes were. Yeah. But this is one of those things where if you honestly think your loved ones are not going to follow through with your wishes, you need a living will. You sure. have one anyways. Yes. But if you, you know, but especially if you believe your loved ones are going to go against what you want, get it done. <laughs> it's more important than I, I, I should have one, but I'm not too worried because I've talked to my wife, I've talked to my parents. The people who know me know what I want, so I'm not too worried. But I, you know, there are families like this where, you know, we've seen this come up before in the past where um, the family will fight and claim, no, 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 that's not what she would have wanted. It's like, well, that's not what we're being told. And this is where I have a problem with people who claim the uh, that you know religion is more moral because this person is suffering has expressed their that they're done and because of a religious conviction they would rather this person suffer and have a real problem right. with that this is where we are more moral than the bible than religion where we are ready where we are willing to stop a person's suffering when they when they request it now, our priorities especially when they get clouded by religion really don't make sense sometimes and this is one of those places and this yeah. is one of the reasons i don't think mother Teresa is a saint because of all the people she let suffer and 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 didn't and didn't actually help so these kind of stories aggravate me because the, because this person has expressed that 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 they're done and all they have to do is remove the breathing tube and maybe she will breathe on her own but more than oh, likely, the breathing tube. If God wants her to live, and God's really go. that powerful, He's going to live, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's certain logic to that. If you guys, you know, if these people really believe it's all God's will, then put it in God's hands. Don't put it in the doctor's hands. Disconnect the tube. Disconnect everything. Say, okay, God. You know, but it's to me that so- somewhat shows just how much faith these people really have in their God. Right. You know. I can uh, talk to you guys about my own experiences with my sister dying. Yeah, please. My sister Deb in 2008 died of lymphoma, which spread into every cancer imaginable, including brain cancer. And uh, towards the end, we had to move her from St. Mary's in Madison, Wisconsin, to the University of Wisconsin Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, in order to get more end-of-life decision choices because we knew that they were coming up. And she ended up in palliative care in the University of Wisconsin's hospital. And and she got uh, sent to uh, a special home for dying uh, off in Pittsburgh, Wisconsin, uh, a hospice. 
And while she was there, we were able to make this decision where she was switched from painkillers to a sedative. And that sedative, once we uh, switched her to that, we knew that uh, that day was the last day we were ever going to talk to her. And the next day she actually passed away. But uh, in the Catholic healthcare system and Catholic churches own a very large portion of hospitals in America, you don't get that decision to switch from painkillers to sedatives, even if the pain is so much that uh, painkillers wouldn't be able to handle it without killing you. You know, the maximum dosage allowed won't handle the pain, but people are still kept alive. And I've, I've given you a link in in the in the notes for the show to Compassion and Choices of Colorado, and that is a uh, an activist organization that fights the Catholic Church, especially on their ethical and religious directives. And the ethical and religious directive that tells Catholic churches not to allow for the switch to sedatives instead of painkillers is uh, ERD number 60 and ERD number 61. And if you look them up, basically they say that a person is to be kept conscious for as long as as is possible because uh, once they go into a, a medicated coma, that's against God's will. Because really, suffering brings you closer to Christ. Yeah, and that's the Mother Teresa line. Yeah, and so it's ERD number 60 and 61 that Compassion Choices have been fighting the hardest here in Colorado. And in Colorado Springs, we have two hospitals. We have Memorial and we have Penrose. One's Catholic and one's not. And one will give you these end-of-life choices and one won't. One will give you a referral to Planned Parenthood, and one won't. And so uh, Compassion and Choices mostly deals with end-of-life issues. Uh, you've got a link there. I think everyone should read the ethical religious directives uh, from the United Council of, of Catholic Bishops and see how mean they are, people, when they're making these end-of-life decisions, because their directives are held above the Hippocratic Oath. Right. Their directives oh, yeah. say well, that if somebody has a, an advanced directive, you know, where they wrote the, in their living will that they want to be uh, put to sleep, you know, instead of being kept on machines, if they want to have a sedative and just die peacefully, they don't get that. Yeah, we've talked and, in past podcasts about um, them choosing the right of the dead fetus over the mother. Mother, basically, the fetus dies, and because the the Catholic hospital sees that as still an abortion because the fetus hasn't come out yet. And the fact that the fetus is in there dead, the mother's life is at stake. Somehow their morals say, hey, we can't take that fetus out because that would be an abortion, even though it's already dead. Your life isn't worth it. You should be willing to die for your faith. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, there's yeah. some messed up lines they're willing to cross. Yeah. Compassion and choices have spoken to a few different skeptics groups like the Free Thinkers of Colorado Springs, and uh, Colorado Colorado's for Alternatives to the Death Penalty also do uh, a little bit of activism on the part of end-of-life decisions on the side as well. And they've come to different skeptics groups' conventions as well. Yeah, and you've got a couple of other things on here. One of them looks like it's a uh, it's a PDF. Yes, oh, these are the, okay, that's the, the actual ethical and religious directives that every Catholic hospital has to abide by. And you'll notice that you have the right to make these living wills and say well, what you want to do in in these end-of-life decisions while you still have the power. 
But in those ethical religious directives, they tell doctors to disregard certain things if they want to keep their jobs at a Catholic hospital. And some of those things are things like if you wanted to be switched from painkillers to a sedative at the end of your life in order to die peacefully in your sleep, they're not to do that. They're to keep you conscious as long as possible. Yeah, it's unfortunate that they would override somebody's will. And and it's a a very big thing to think about when you're selecting which hospital you want your loved ones to go to. Uh, You you should be selecting based on what kind of care and options you're, you're going to have in the future. But many people don't know that they have less options if they go to these uh, Catholic-maintained hospitals. I'm kind of out of anything at this point. I mean, I'm just so distraught. I know. It's it's a very yeah, hard to talk about subject, and, yeah, and it, yeah. it just tears the life out of your soul for a couple hours just thinking about all these people in pain and not being able to end it. Yep. All right. Well, does anybody have anything else to add at this point? Yeah, I think we've pretty much depressed all our listeners. I think so too. <laughs> this is this is a tough one, but I think it's important yeah. that we talk about it. Oh yeah. I'm glad that we did. So, all right. Well, then I I think that we're going to go ahead and uh, end it there, unless somebody else has got okay. anything else. Well, uh, remember, listeners, I'm good. Okay. don't bring it up enough. Check us out on Facebook, leave remarks, comments, start discussions, give us something to work with. Um, go to our webpage, leave stuff there. We love your feedback. We need more of it. Yeah, and certainly if anybody has different opinions than us on, on the things that we we spoke about um, in particular, I mean, because these the two issues that we talked about this evening, certainly there could be other sides too that, that we have not taken into account. Let us know, and, and we'll certainly uh, uh, investigate that and take a look. So, All right, say goodnight, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. For more information about the Amateur Skeptics, go to AmateurSkeptics.com. To send us feedback, suggestions, or big flaming insults, feel free to contact us at WTF at AmateurSkeptics.com. Other contact information can be found on our website. You can leave a voicemail for the Amateur Skeptics Podcast at 720-295-7785. Music for this podcast was provided by OFM. To find out more about OFM, go to myspace.com forward slash OFMHQ. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 3.5 license. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Amateur Skeptics website, Facebook, and podcast album art is provided by and copyright Shadow Knight Digital Portraiture. Larger prints or custom pieces are available upon request. 